Welcome to River of Life's Wednesday Night Podcast with Derek Gray. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to visit River of Life Church this Wednesday at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. Visit rolcrawfordville.com for service times and directions. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Now, let's join Derek as he teaches from the Word of God. Um, If you got your Bibles tonight... And uh, you want to follow along, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And the title of our lesson is, Has God Failed? Has God Failed? Now, tonight we are stepping out of, uh, well, last week we finished up in Romans chapter 8, which is, you've heard me say it many times, in my opinion, the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. Tonight, we step into Romans 9, which in my opinion is the most controversial chapter in the entire Bible. And it turns out that those two things are related with one another. Something that Paul has said or something that Paul has done in chapter 8 actually leads to this controversy in chapter 9. And we'll talk about that in, in just a moment. Now... I want to start with a couple of things before we get into the verses. We are going to talk about some, in the next two or three weeks, however long it takes us to get through uh, Romans 9, we're going to talk about some serious issues. We're going to talk about some heavy things, some weighty things in this chapter. And I want you to understand that what we're going to talk about isn't even in the same stratosphere as what they talk about on Christian radio. I don't often go to Christian radio, but when I do, uh, what do I hear them talking about? Are they talking about the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the judgment of God, the love of God, the mercy of God? No, they're talking about what happened on The Bachelor. Are you with me? We're not even in the same stratosphere as that. We're not in the same universe, if you will, of entertainment and sports and politics and social media, things that, that people put so much time and effort and and attach so much importance to. We're we're not even in that universe. And what we're going to talk about will never, you'll never in a million years ever hear it preached about on TV. Never. Because it doesn't fit the man-centered message that the vast majority of the people in this country want to hear. So this is Romans 9, but here's the thing. It is the Word of God. I I didn't, what we're going to talk about, I didn't make it up. I didn't write it. I didn't. There wasn't some scribe in the 5th century that slipped this into Paul's letter. This has always been in Paul's letter from the very beginning. And I think it's imperative that we take the time to study it. And here's why. Do you understand that the Bible is the Word of God? We call it the revelation of God because it reveals who God is. From Genesis to Revelation, every... Every book, every chapter, every verse is revealing something about God. Now, here's the thing. Everybody, I'm assuming, likes a buffet, right? Everybody likes to go to Golden Corral because if you just want fried chicken and banana pudding, then you can eat fried chicken and banana pudding. And you don't have to worry about Brussels sprouts or any of those other horrible things that that people make. You just focus on what you want. And that's great for eating a meal, but 
What if we treat Scripture like that? You see, the fact is, in the, there are places in the Bible some Christians have never been. There are chapters and verses in the Bible that some Christians have, have never even read, much less studied. So if the Bible is the revelation of God from Genesis to the book of Revelation, and we tend to skip certain parts of it, what is the result of that? The result of that is you end up, at the very least, with an obscured or altered or incomplete portrait of who God is. At its worst, you end up with a caricature of who God is. Now listen, I don't know about you, but I don't want that. I want to know who God is. Even if there's things about it that I don't necessarily find that appealing, I still want to know who God is. So, we come to Romans 9. Now, before we get to the first verse, we want to talk, I want to give you a, a real quick overview of what Romans 9 is all about. Now, to understand Romans 9, we have to go back to Romans 8. Romans 8, remember when we started it a few weeks ago? Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 31, uh, Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the middle of that, we've got verses like this, if God be for us, what? Who can be against us? You see, Romans 8 is all about you and I having the assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's, it's all about assurance. Now listen, we learned some incredible things in that chapter. We, got, we learned some words that we were foreknown, that we're predestined, that we are loved, that we are called, that we are chosen. Those are incredible things. But listen, Paul's entire point in telling us those things is to make sure that we understand that those are acts of God. You get that? He's trying to build assurance in us, but he wants us to know those are acts of God. You see, our assurance has to be in him, not in ourselves. Pastor Henry, I think, asked this past week, standing right here, if you died today, are you 100% sure of where you would spend eternity? Listen to me. If your assurance is in yourself, if it's in your behavior or your faith or your faithfulness, you will never be 100% assured. Your assurance will go up and down like a roller coaster because of all those things. You go up and down like a roller coaster. If you want to be 100% sure of your salvation, then you need to be 100% sure that it's, it's, it's in His hands, not your own. That's what Romans 8 was all about. Now, we close the book on Romans 8. We step into Romans 9, and just like that, the tone of the letter changes immediately. I've often told you guys the chapters and verses weren't in the original Bible, right? Those didn't get added to the 15th and 16th centuries. And the men who did that, to be quite honest, sometimes they did a terrible job of deciding where the verses and chapters went. But this time, they got it right. If you're going to divide Paul's letter, there is a, this is exactly where you want the dividing line between the end of chapter 8 and the start of chapter 9, because Paul is picking up something completely new. You see, as he comes to the end of chapter 8, Paul realizes he's got a problem. He's got what you and I would call an elephant in the room. There's something that he needs to deal with. He has just finished telling us that we are loved, and we are called, 
and we're chosen. That if God be for us, who can be against us? We can't be separated from His love. All of these wonderful things, and yet He's got a big, big problem. And His problem is this. God said those exact same things to the nation of Israel. He said the same things to Israel. For example, in Deuteronomy 7, He said Israel is loved. Israel is called. Right? Same things He said to to me. Yet Paul has spent eight chapters in Romans, and specifically Romans 3 and 4, telling us that being made right with God is not about temples, it's not about priests, it's not about altars and sacrifices and rituals and washings, it's not about ethnicity or nationality or anything like that. It's about one thing and one thing only, and that's faith. You want to be made right with God, you do it through faith. And if you and I or the nation of Israel tries to depend on any of those other things, you will be accursed, you will be cut off from God, and you will be eternally lost. So where does that leave the nation of Israel? You see, what is at stake as we come to Romans 9 is the promises of Romans 8. Let me tell you, there are huge issues here. There are weighty things here. But they're not here just for their own sake. They're not here so Paul can just say, man, look how smart I am or or look what great revelation that I have. No, they are here to answer a burning question. If God didn't keep His promises to Israel, then how in the world can I be ever 100% sure that He'll keep His promises for me? That's what Romans 9 is all about, okay? Now, let me tell you, most people, when you come to Romans 9, they think, well, you know, this is just some obscure theological discussion about Israel. No. No, it's not. It's about us. It's about us. You see, if I'm going to make it to heaven, I'm not going to make it there under my own volition. I'm going to make it for one reason and one reason only, because God is faithful to His promises. That's the only reason I'm going to make it. I have to be able to trust that when He said He would do it, He'll do it. This chapter is about us. Can we trust the promises of God if He didn't keep His promises to the nation of Israel? Is that true? That is what Paul is going to be dealing with. Now, if you got your Bibles, I encourage you, follow along. There's something about just following along and see how the thought process moves That's better. So I'd encourage you to do that. So we're going to walk into the first three verses. And this is where Paul lays out the problem. So let's read verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to... To the flesh. Now, Paul has just come out of chapter 8. You go look at verse 31. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he turns right on the first verse and he says, You know what? That may be true, but I have got unceasing anguish and sorrow in my heart. Why? Because his people, the Jews, are lost. They are accursed. They are cut off from God. Now, why? Well, he, we'll study this more later in chapter 9 and chapter 10. But this is the problem. 
Romans 9, 31 to 33 says this, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. In chapter 10, he says this, For I testify about them, talking about the Jews, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the, excuse me, the righteousness of God. For the goal of the law, man, I love this, is Christ for righteousness. We've mentioned this multiple times. It bears repeating. The law was given to lead people to Jesus Christ. The, the law was given, all those rules and regulations, to show the Jews that you can't do it. You can never keep the law perfectly. The whole point was to bring in a Messiah, a Christ, a Savior, who would keep the law for you perfectly, and oh yeah, by the way, would also pay for all the times you didn't keep it perfectly. The goal of the law was Christ for righteousness. Christ for righteousness. And how do we obtain that? You just believe. You just put your faith in Him. Now, the Jews aren't doing that. They're relying on temples and priests and altars and sacrifices and all these other things. And that's why they're lost, because they missed it. Now, here's the thing. There are other nations in the same boat. There are other people groups around the world that are in the exact same boat as Israel. They're, they're trying to get to God through religion. So what is it about Israel that seems to, 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 to strike such a chord of despair and sorrow and anguish inside of Paul? Well, the easy answer is they are his people. And he said as much in verse 3. They are my kinsmen according to the flesh. But it's more than that. It turns out what really makes this situation so tragic is the privileges that they were given. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. He's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I want you to understand the problem that Paul is facing. Here you've got the nation of Israel, and they are loved. They are called. They are chosen by God. And they are given these unparalleled privileges. Do you understand they heard things that no other nation ever heard? They saw things about God no other nation ever saw. They experienced God in a way that no other nation ever experienced. Yet, and despite that, despite the fact that they were loved by God and called by God and chosen by God, despite the fact that they heard and saw and experienced God in ways that other people did not, despite all of that, they're lost. And Paul is saying, how can that be? How can that, how can that happen if God is faithful? He's got to deal with that Problem. And I'm going to say it one more time before we get into the verses. This isn't some obscure theological problem that just affects the nation of Israel. This affects me. I'm called. I'm loved. I'm chosen. I have, I've heard things that that Hindu in India has never heard. I've seen things with my eyes that that Muslim in Iran has never seen. 
I've experienced God in a way that other people have never experienced Him. Can I be lost? Can I be lost? Israel's lost. What about me? You see the issue here? This is a big deal that he's dealing with, and it isn't an obscure theological point. This has everything to do with my eternal destiny and your eternal destiny. So this is the question that Paul is facing. Has the Word of God failed? Has God's promises to Israel failed? And this is his answer in verse 6. No. No, it hasn't failed. It is not as though the Word of God has failed, is what he says in verse 6. Now listen, he can't just say that. He's got to back it up. Okay, what do you mean, Paul? It hasn't failed. Let's read verses 6 and 7. He said, It is not as though the Word of God has failed. And here's his explanation. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, or not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. So here's what he's saying. Just because somebody is an ethnic Jew, and by ethnic Jew I mean they have the bloodline of Abraham, the DNA of Abraham flowing in their veins. They are of the direct lineage. Just because someone is an ethnic Jew, just because someone is a physical descendant of Abraham, Paul says that does not make them a true Israelite. Now, what Paul sees here is a people within a people. You've got this nation of Israel, these ethnic Jews, and inside of that is a subset, a small group of people, who Paul refers to as the true Israel. You've got all these people who are uh, direct descendants, physical descendants of Abraham, and yet you've got this smaller group inside of that, a subset, who he calls the true offspring of Abraham. Now, where does Paul get this idea? He gets it from the Old Testament, from the example or the illustration or the story of Isaac and Ishmael. Now, I'm going to read verses 7 to 9. I'm going to skip verse 8 for a moment. I'll come back to it. Let's begin by reading verses 7 and 9. Paul says, Not all are children of Abraham just because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's quoting uh, Genesis 21, 12. And then in verse 9 he says, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And he's quoting Genesis 18.10. Now I'm sure that the majority of people here probably know the story of Isaac and Ishmael. But I want to make sure, because I'm assuming there's some people here that don't, so I'm going to make sure you understand the context of what's going on. When Abraham was 75 years old, God plucked him out of paganism. He was living in a city called Ur, and, and God literally just plucked him out. Of, of, of just, he was just a pagan like everybody else, and God chose him. And God gave him these incredible promises. He told Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And oh yeah, by the way, look up at the sky. If you can number the stars, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Can you imagine? There's just one teensy, weensy little problem. And that is Abraham has no children. He's 75 years old. His wife Sarah is 66 years old. They've been trying for years. They have been trying for years to have a child. And she is barren. She cannot have children. 
And here God gives them this promise. So they begin to wait. Now, they're human beings just like us. If God told me that, I would expect she'd be pregnant next month, wouldn't you? So a year goes by, nothing. Two years go by, nothing. Five years go by, nothing. Ten years go by, nothing. Now, what Abraham should have done is he just should have trusted God and let it happen. But Sarah got anxious. She got impatient. After ten years, she just thought, man, this this thing ain't going to happen. So she convinced Abraham to go into her maid, a woman named Hagar. And so he did. He went in and in with the maid, and they produced, produced a child called Ishmael. So when Abraham is 86 years old, he finally has this son. And he loves... I mean, can you imagine trying all these years and, and not being able to have a child? Your, your, your heir was going to be your servant, a guy by the name of Eliezer. He wanted a child so bad, and now here he is. Named him Ishmael. And Abraham loves this boy. But Paul calls him a child of the flesh. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Paul says, this is what men produce. This is what the will of man produces. This is what men's desires and men's ideas and men's... All of that. This is what men can produce. He calls him a child of the flesh. Now... Abraham loved Ishmael, and he wanted Ishmael to be the heir of all those wonderful promises. In fact, in Genesis 17, he says to to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. No. He said, I told you, Sarah is going to have a son, and you're going to name him Isaac. It's not Ishmael. It's Sarah is going to have a son. Now, here's what I want you to see before we move on. Ishmael is a physical child of Abraham. He's got Abraham's blood. He's got Abraham's DNA. Not only that, he's the firstborn. By law, by tradition, he should inherit everything that Abraham has. He should be the heir of the promise. But God said, no. No, you, that's what man produces. I'm going to produce something else. So Ishmael is not the heir. Now, here's just a quick one here. God's promises are not predictions of what's going to come about with our help. Let me say it again. God's promises is not a prediction of what's going to happen with your help. If God promises it, He'll bring it to pass. He don't need your help. He'll make it happen. Now, finally, it does. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90. 25 years after he made the promise... She has that little boy. And this is an interesting thing. When God first made that promise, she was around 66 years old. She was barren. God waited till she was 90 years old and she was in the menopause. Now, I mean, that's what she said. He, he, the angel said, I'll come back in a year and she'll, she'll be pregnant. And she laughed. She said, the, the way of women is, is, is past. I can't have children anymore. It's over. See, God waited until it was impossible in man's eyes. Not only was she barren, now she's in menopause. It's over. She's not having any children, yet God comes and performs a miracle. See, this child would never have been in in, in existence without 
the, the, the miraculous intervention of God. And Paul says, that's a child of promise. That's a child of promise. Ishmael is what you produce. Isaac is what I produce. Now, let's look at verse 8. Paul says, this means... Now, what Paul is doing is he's looking at that story and he's going to tell you what it means. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are children of God. Now, wait a minute. Stop right there. Do you understand Paul just made a jump? He just made a jump. He's not talking about two physical boys anymore. He's talking about children of flesh and children of God. He says this means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring or true offspring of Abraham. In Galatians 3, Paul says this, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So when he talks about children of flesh, he's talking about people without faith. When he talks about children of promise, he's talking about children of faith. God produces that. See, the birth of Isaac is a picture to Paul of how every child of God spiritually is brought into existence. You're not a child of God because of your family. You're not a child of God because of your birth order, your race or your ethnicity or your gender or your nationality or any attribute or trait that you might have. See, only men can only create children of flesh. God alone creates children of promise. That takes God. That takes God's intervention to do that. So, has God's promises failed? No. No, Paul says it was never God's intention that every ethnic Jew would automatically be guaranteed salvation. Only children of promise. It was never his intention that every Jew would be guaranteed salvation. Only ones who are children of promise. So what we see in this story is God is choosing some descendants of Abraham, in this case Isaac, to be a child of promise. And he's not choosing others, in this case Ishmael, and he's leaving them as children of the flesh. So this is where Paul gets this idea of a people within a people. Now let me ask a question. Does anybody really find that controversial? Anybody? I, I don't. I mean, after all, you get the story, right? God said Sarah's going to have a son. Abraham tries to go around God's plan, right? I mean, it's obvious he wouldn't choose Ishmael. To me, he was going to choose Isaac all along. I just don't see that as being that controversial. Now, Paul's made his point, and he could have stopped right there. In fact, some people would say he should have stopped right there. But here's the thing. I'm not writing Scripture. He is. He's the one writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he decides to go on. And he's going to give us a second example. And this is where it starts to get controversial. He's going to give us a second example. And he thinks this is a better example of how God chooses or how God creates children of promise. And he's going to reach into the Old Testament one more time. And he's going to choose the story of Jacob and Esau who are Abraham's grandsons. Now, before we look at these verses, don't forget what, what he's trying to illustrate. 
physical descendants of Abraham, ethnic Jews, are not automatically guaranteed to be children of God. God makes that choice, and God creates those children. That's, this is the whole thing that he's trying to uh, illustrate. Now, let's read verses 10 and 11. Paul says, and not only so, in other words, not only is that an example, but here's another one. When Rebekah had conceived children, notice that's plural, not singular, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Now let's go back to our family tree, if we can. Abraham has a son named Ishmael by Hagar. He has a son named Isaac. And God says, I choose Isaac. He is the child of promise. Sarah dies. Isaac goes, uh, uh, Abraham's servant goes and brings home a wife for, for Isaac. Her name is Rebekah. And they are just, they fall madly in love with one another. And lo and behold, she's barren. They try for 19 years to have a child. 19 years. Can't have one. God just, he just loves doing things the hard way, don't he? And finally, after 19 years, she gets pregnant, and she's pregnant with twins. There are two boys in her womb. Now, which one of them is going to be the heir? Now, if we go by luck or chance or whatever... Whichever one comes out first, by law, that's the heir. That's the way it worked back then. Firstborn son gets it all. Which one is it going to be? Let's read verses 10 and 11. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Now let's stop right there. I want you to notice very carefully what Paul is doing with this example. He sees this example of Jacob and Esau as a better example than Isaac and Ishmael for two reasons. Number one, these boys are twins. You see, Isaac and Ishmael were separated by 13 years. Ishmael was 13 years old when Isaac was born. They're separated by 13 years. These two boys are twins. Not only are they twins, they hadn't been born yet. They're still in the womb. And so not only have they not been born yet, they hadn't done anything good and they hadn't done anything bad. So the conditions in the womb are the same. The actions or or non-actions on their part are exactly the same. See, what Paul is doing here is he's taking this example because the differences between these boys are minimal at best, virtually nil. There is no difference between them. That's the first thing that he sees. The second thing that makes him see this as a better example is they have the same parents. Did you notice what he said in Romans 9:10? And not only so, but when Rebecca had conceived children by one man. See, he's pointing out that she didn't have one child by one man and one child by another man so that they had different fathers the way Isaac and Ishmael had different mothers. They had the same mother and the same father. Now, why is that important? Because somebody might have looked at Ishmael and Isaac and said, Oh, well, of course God didn't choose Ishmael. His mother was a Gentile. He's a half-breed. Of course he's going to choose Isaac. Isaac is the pure Jew. See, somebody could have said that. But in this example with Jacob and Esau, they can't say that. They're twins. They're in the same womb. 
They're not even born. They got the same mama and the same daddy. Why is Paul doing this? What he's doing, he's systematically doing with any doing away with any human differences that would make God choose one boy over the other. They hadn't done anything good, hadn't done anything bad. God can't choose him because he's done something good and him because he's done something bad or him because he had a Gentile mother and him... No. Now, these boys are exactly the same. They're not born. They hadn't done anything good or bad. Now, let's read verses 11, 12. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Let's put it a different way. Before they're born... Before they've done anything good or bad, the Word says, she was told the older is going to serve the younger. Why? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works on their part. Not because they're good kids or bad kids or their parents are this or their parents are that. Why? Because of Him who calls. I choose, God says, I choose the child of promise. And it's nothing because of them. And, and that's exactly what he does. Jacob becomes Israel. We, we see him on the news. We see his name on the news every day. Israel. That God changed his name to Israel. And here we are 3,000, 3,500 years later, and we're still talking about him because God chose him while he was still in the womb. See, God chooses children of promise, not man. God decides the destiny of these two boys, and He does it. And by the way, the nations they represent, we'll talk about that next week, and He does it before they're born, and He does it before they do anything good or bad. It's not their behavior. It's not their birth order. It's not their parents. It's not even their faith, because they don't have any. They're in the womb. They don't have any faith yet. Before all that, God said, I choose Jacob, not Esau. The choice is unconditional. What that means is that it's not conditioned upon anything in those boys or anything in their parents. God just chose him. Now listen, God has reasons for everything he does. God doesn't just flip a coin and say, yep, let's go with Jacob. He's got reasons, but they're his reasons, not ours. Now, that's a little more controversial. Some of you read that and, you, and your first thought is, well, that's not fair. That's not really fair. But listen, I'll be honest with you. I don't find it that controversial because he's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. I mean, that's just, that he's God. Open the Bible and read it. God is choosing this and choosing that nation and choosing this. And, I mean, he's just God. And if Paul would have stopped right there... <laughs> If you'd have just stopped right there, Paul, it probably wouldn't have been such a big deal. But he doesn't. He's got one more thing that he's just got to say. Verse 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And everything in us says, that's not fair. That's not right. He quotes Malachi 1. Now, by the way, we're running out of time, so we're not going to get to cover that tonight. We'll come back next week. I'll leave you hanging. But that is important. 
we need to understand what that means, and we'll explain that to you uh, next week. Before we leave tonight, though, I need to remind you of the overall purpose of this chapter. Paul wants us to know. We've come out of chapter 8, right? With all these wonderful things that he said about us. And he wants us to know God's word to Israel has not failed. You can count on the promises of Romans 8. Why? Because God has always been choosing children of promise. He did it in the nation of Israel, and he's still doing it today. And when God chooses children of promise, he always fulfills his promises. He always fulfills his word. And he does it in such a way that it depends not on us, but on him who calls. Now, let's stop right here. I need to say this, okay? I said it two weeks ago. I'm going to say it again tonight. God chose Jacob over Esau when he was in the womb before he had done anything good or bad. But that does not mean that Jacob and Esau will not go on to be born and make choices and they will be responsible for those choices. Let me say that again. Romans 9 does not connect, uh, contradict the truth that those boys are going to be born and they're going to make their own choices and they're going to be responsible for those choices. Listen to me. If Jacob is going to be saved, he's going to be saved because he put his faith in God. And if Esau is going to be condemned, he's going to be condemned for his unbelief. You see, at the end of the day, that's how we're judged. Those two things is, is what accords with our judgment. You either put your faith in Jesus Christ or you didn't. And I say it all the time. We are saved by looking back to what Jesus did. They are saved by looking forward to what Jesus would do. But we're all saved the same way, through faith in Christ. Now, how is that possible? How is it that God can choose some and not others, and yet those same people are responsible and accountable for their choices. I have no idea. I have no idea how that's true. I just know the Bible teaches both. I, I said it two weeks ago. It's a perfect balance in the Bible. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's your responsibility. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's His sovereignty. You see it over and over and over again. And what you and I cannot do is we can't throw one out at the expense of the other. You can't say, well, it's all about me and my free will and my choices and, and God has nothing to do with it. That is a caricature of God. At the same time, you can't come back and say, well, we're just a bunch of robots and God is sovereign and he, whatever's going to happen, que sera, sera, and it's got nothing to do with me. That is a caricature of God. That is not who God is. The Bible holds them both in perfect balance. How is that? How can that be? I don't know. I just know, as, I, as, as Pastor Henry said a few weeks ago, God says, my ways are so much higher than your ways. My thoughts are so much higher than your thoughts. The psalmist says in 139, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't attain it. I can't. I can't grasp my... I just can't grasp it. But I believe it. I believe it. I want to know God. 
I want to know everything there is to be about him, even the things that I can't quite understand. But if that Bible says it, then I believe that's who he is. Let's pray. Father, as always, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who is, uh, I believe, here with us tonight and taking my pitiful attempts to explain the deep things of God and somehow explaining it to the spirits of your children. I, I don't know how you do that, but you do. Thank you, God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for doing what I cannot do. We love you, Lord. We love you. We, we thank you that we have freedom to choose. But I also thank you that you chose me. I thank you for both of those things. I thank you, God, that, that I'm required to walk in your ways and, 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 and pray and press and fight and battle. But I also think that all that, even the want to, is you working inside of me. I believe both of those things, and I thank you for both of those things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the River of Life podcast. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with you, please let us know. You can call us at 850-926-1200 or send an email at info at riveroflifefl.com. We also encourage you to check out River of Life live this Wednesday at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.